Happy Friday, and thanks for making it through another week with us here on the Rocketeer Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnston-directed feature, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So, Jim, I think I've got a pretty cool job, and uh, and you've done some amazing work in your career, but... Uh, our guest today makes me feel like kind of a chump. Uh, we are really, really excited to welcome uh, uh, Stefano Paris, who is chief engineer for a company called Jetpack Aviation. And you can tell by the title exactly what they do. Uh, he's an engineer. And as I understand it, Stefano, you're a Jetpack pilot as well. So uh, welcome to the Rocketeer Minute. Th- thank you very much for inviting me to the show. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, we have uh, We have Billy Campbell on, who is... Our, our rocketeer, but you are actually a real rocketeer. You've flown in the sky with a thing on your back that makes it all happen. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a long forty-year process for me. It's it's a privilege and it's it's a lifelong dream that has finally come true for all of us. For Nelson Tyler and uh, David Maiman. Uh David is the CEO. Uh, met Mel- Nelson about ten years ago, eleven years ago, and. Uh, We've all we've been doing this ever since. I've actually been doing it since '93, uh, when I first met Nelson. I had uh, gone to a car show in Sacramento uh, at Cal Expo, maybe around '91 or '92, and I I didn't even look at any of the cars because they had this uh, James Bond exhibit, 007, and they had one of the original Bell Aerospace rocket belts there, and I. I had been fascinated about these things forever, but I'd never seen one in person. I spent the entire four hours just mesmerized by this rocket belt. I had my little Canovision 8-millimeter video camera, and I filmed the little 13-inch uh, CRT TV that they had there. <laughs> and uh, they also had a wet bike, which was something Nelson invented in the 70s uh, alongside the jet, the, uh, the jet ski. Uh, he gave me the the number of Bill Souter, who was the 19-year-old that uh, lived next door to Wendell Moore. And uh, Wendell Moore is the inventor of the rocket belt uh, in the early 60s. And he became one of their chief test pilots, most experienced pilot uh, of the rocket belt. So I, I sent off about a 20-page letter back in the day before email. I had email through the university, but you know nobody really had email yet. And the internet didn't exist uh, publicly. And in that, I had a lot of sketches for ways of how we could do some sort of jetpack other than rockets, because I knew 21 seconds, 30 seconds, that wasn't going to cut it for me. That was the older technology. And and I wanted to fly for minutes. And uh, he sent that packet off to Nelson, and Nelson gave me a call. And that's how things really got underway for me. Uh, that's great. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, Bill Souter, and um, I've been talking to him a little bit uh, lately. We've talked about it, getting him on the show and scheduling things are uh, are a challenge. But of course, he's uh, you know he's a, a legend in this world. He's 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 the guy, and uh, it was really interesting to me reading up on your company's history about uh, about that crossover. Because if if I read correctly, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, Nelson worked with Bill on the the uh, the Bell rocket belt that uh, he flew in the '84 Olympics. Is that right? Yeah. So the story goes. Uh, Nelson's story starts when he was about 10 years old. He was in the 
backseat of his father's Packard, and on the radio came Buck Rogers. And uh, Buck Rogers and his girlfriend flew down to this planet with their jetpacks, and Nelson thought one day he would have his own jetpack. And years passed, and nothing was happening, and he finally decided, well, I'm just going to have to do this myself. And uh, he had seen Bell progress with their rocket belt, and it was at the World's Fair, and Bill Suter had been flying it around. So he, he took a bunch of detailed pictures of the Bell rocket belt and went back to a shop in Van Nuys. And Nelson is the father of aerial cinematography. Pretty much all those establishing shots from helicopters, uh, they all originated uh, from Nelson and, and his stabilized or mass stabilized arm technology. So he Nelson is really the first civilian to build a rocket belt. And it, his rocket belt was probably the one for a good two to three decades before maybe a few other copies started to come into place in the 90s. And uh, in the early 70s, he had completed the rocket belt, but still trying to teach himself how to fly. And he decided to contact Bill Suter. And Bill Suter came out to look at this contraption and was completely blown away by the quality uh, and the beauty that Nelson puts into all the hardware that he designs. You can see on our youtube.com slash Jetpack Aviation uh, YouTube channel, you can see a video of Bill Suter flying Nelson's rocket belt for the first time in the parking lot on a, on a tether system that is still there after all these years, 45 years, I think. That's amazing. And you can see after like the first little puff, they get it adjusted. Bill is like, oh, this is great. He takes his hand off and he does the OK signal signal and thumbs up and, and then keeps on flying. And Nelson is just like, how is he flying with just one hand? But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, Bill, Bill definitely has the most uh, flights, 21-second flights, and, and is an expert with these types of devices. So. In these uh, the original Bell rocket belts, if I'm remembering correctly, they were like hydrogen peroxide, right? Hydrogen peroxide jets sort of up off the shoulders? Yeah, so it, it has three tanks. Two of them are hydrogen peroxide, and the center one is nitrogen to like 2,000 PSI, but they have a regulator down to just shy of 600 PSI, and there's no real moving parts other than that uh, ruby valve, throttle valve, and it is a rocket, and uh, there's a catalyst pack full of silver screens right behind your neck, and the nitrogen pushes the hydrogen peroxide into that catalyst pack where it expands 5,000 times its volume into steam, uh, like 1,300 degrees steam, and that comes jetting out the tubes on either side of you, and right about your waist you have, or maybe slightly above your waist, you have the rocket nozzles, uh, along with the two little jet evaders for yaw control. You're just basically flying on two really small pinky-sized columns of steam uh you don't you don't want to get underneath them they're hot uh but that's how pretty much all the rocket belts have flown and er everything everything's balanced around your center of gravity and and you'll see that also with our jetpack it's one thing unfortunately that the movies don't get right is the positioning of where the jets should be both in the rocketeer and any other jetpack things you might have seen in the movie you'd probably go tumbling with the jets mounted where they are on your back there they, they need to be mounted uh or the thrust exits need to be mounted right at the center of gravity of of you of of the pilot that's interesting and you you mentioned a couple of times these 21 second flights 30 second flights and that was that was pretty much the standard from the the 60s for you know decades after that and bell did a little bit of work with a with a proper jet as opposed to the rocket belts that i think maybe flew five minutes something like that but 
um, or maybe was capable of that. But Jetpack Aviation has been iterating for quite a while, and you guys are, are now sort of getting a lot of attention in the news with the JB-9, now the JB-10. And how long can that one fly? Yeah, it's it's always dependent on how much uh, fuel you can carry. Uh, ours, our JB-10, J, the difference between JB-9 and JB-10 has to do a lot with, with the detail of the hardware and also a new fuel tank. But we, we can fly almost 10 minutes. It's, it's really dependent on pilot weight. If you have too much pilot weight, maybe you might not be able to fill up all the fuel. If you have a lighter pilot, of course, you can fill the tank, which is almost 10 gallons uh, full. Burn a, about a gallon a minute with the jets while you're flying around is it jet a or is it any particular type of fuel i mean will will be gasoline diesel whatever i'm I'm not sure what you'd use well the the generic is kerosene but yes we we primarily use jet a uh, that you'd find at any airport helicopters or jets use Uh, we it can run on diesel we have run it on diesel if jet a isn't available Uh, jet a is preferred because it's a cleaner cleaner fuel and it lights off nicely and 10 minutes is a really long time. People get bored uh, watching a jetpack maybe after about three minutes. Um, the rocket belt was always... What kind of world do we live in where somebody's bored watching a jetpack? That's amazing. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, Of course, I would never get bored. But, uh, you know, during demonstrations and things, if, if it lasts maybe more than three minutes, uh, people start looking down at their phones. And But no, it's... Each each time one of our jetpacks flies, whether I'm an assistant, spectator, or flying it, it's it's really special. I can't take my eyes off of it. Real, real dream come true. I've seen the video uh, where there's a, a jetpack flying over Monaco, and I don't think my mouth closed the entire time I was watching the video. It's just it's astonishing to see uh, the the amount of control and just the simplicity of it all. It's amazing. It's just amazing to see a flight. How long from you know, on a first flight? How long does it take you to get used to you know control of it as you're you know lifting off or, or aiming in direction? Is it is it very like is it easily body conscious? Do you do you get the feedback uh, immediately, or does that take a while to get used to? I, I think you do. Um, we can talk a little bit about training. I went through training with another individual in his 30s. Um, He has no aviation experience, hasn't really been thinking about this much uh, during his life. I, of course, have been dreaming about flying since I saw Superman in 1978. I was about (laughs) eight years old, and I thought, wow, that is the most amazing thing ever. I would love to soar without wings, just, just flying through the air. And then, of course, I saw the Olympics 1984 opening ceremony with Bill, with Bill Suter flying Nelson Tyler's rocket belt over the, over the stadium, and uh, on and on, and of course the Rocketeer was just I saw that it was probably June or so, 1991, at a theater in Sacramento. I had specifically driven to Sacramento to see that movie, and I might have gone there twice, which is a rarity uh, at the time to you know go to the theater twice uh, to see <laughs> the movie, but. Uh, I would say within the first few tether flights, we have a training facility uh, that we've set up with a tether overhead. It's about 30 feet up off the ground, about 150 feet. One one side is tied to a scaffold. The other is tied to a eucalyptus tree. Uh, It's been working (laughs) out okay. Um, Again, you know, everybody is somewhat resource constrained, uh, but this is a big improvement over earlier tether systems at the shop where 
we were much more constrained with space. Within a few flights, you generally pick it up. It's it tends to be very intuitive. Uh, it's similar control systems as the rocket belt. You have you have pitch are the arms. You pull them up to go backwards, push them down to go forwards. Uh, if you roll them side to side, you'll go either to the right or to the left. And in your left hand, you have a yaw control that's for turning. Uh, those control little jet evaders at the end of our jets uh, differentially. Uh, they're opposed motion. You know, you don't have to touch that too much. You just have to kiss the jets a little bit with it, and uh, you'll either turn left or right. And the right hand is a throttle, and it operates the same way the rocket belt did, and that is you you twist it away from you. It's reverse of a motorcycle. Again, it's it's mounted vertically versus horizontally like on a motorcycle. And that, that seems to make the most sense. I asked Bill, why was it that way? And the human factors engineers at Bell Aerospace 50 years ago decided that would be the most intuitive for going up and going down or increasing power. And uh, it, it takes about maybe five to 10 flights. And then you're capable of hovering 25 feet off the ground close to the tether. We have a automatic descender that we're attached to. So if anything were to happen and you chop power, the descender locks like a seatbelt and keeps you from falling, uh, which is really nice, but it also is free moving. It lets you move back and forth on this tether. There's a video as well on our YouTube channel, again, youtube.com slash jetpack aviation of David uh, flying on our tether system from a couple years ago. So you can see how that all works. Wow. Uh, and you guys are doing, a, I don't know if I would call it a contest or something. You're, you're putting out a call for people that want to learn to fly a jetpack. If I, I just got your mail the other day. Yeah, that's, that's coming from our marketing guy. Uh, we did do a contest it's about six months ago for the first person to try on our jetpack and go for a couple flights. Uh, that was won by a vlogger, Misha Pollock, and I think we conducted that in March. He came okay. out and he, he did a couple flights, and he, he has an aerospace background, which maybe helped a little bit, but you, you can see he was starting to understand the control aspects. Uh, definitely by the second flight, he could take off and he could maybe translate a little and turn. We've we've developed a, a pretty serious uh, training regimen that by about 50 flights on the tether, you should be practiced enough to go free flight, go off the tether. And, uh, you know, people learn at different rates, but, uh, but that, that seems to be, be a nice number in terms of so, training flights. So something I've been wondering about is, uh, and this may be a, a little bit too legally nerdy for a lot of our audience, but... Um, as you guys are starting to uh, ramp up to sell these things, uh, sell these things to people and things, how are they going to be? How are they going to be certified? It's uh, it's too fast in uh, to to count as an ultralight in the U.S. Or at least the potential is too fast, isn't it? Well, that that is an ongoing process. We've we've been working with the FAA uh, the entire time since our very first public demonstration flight, which was David's flight around the Statue of Liberty in November third of, of 2015. Initially, we had been hoping we could get certified under Part 103 ultralight. Uh, but yes, there is a speed issue and there's a fuel quantity issue. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 10 gallons. You're too much. You've got too much so, fuel aboard. 
it, it so that, that's that's a process right now it's it'll get a little nerdy in detail to yeah. to go into that and you know what if it can't be part 103 then possibly it has to be experimental and 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 the 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 real the real problem is that for these types of vehicles there are no regulations yet that exist so we're right. we've been told we're the tip of the spear which could be a good thing or a bad thing uh but we're having to sort of set the standard of how these vehicles will be regulated, type certificated, who signs off on whether somebody is proficient to fly. At the moment, David, of course, is the most expert uh, jetpack pilot probably in the world from all his flights. Do you foresee things like um, filing a flight plan to, yeah, or, or I mean, how I, I'm trying to picture in an ideal world, what, what would it be like being a, a rocketeer of what, you know, what you'd have to do to, do you have to call the center or things like that to? Well, I mean, at the moment, you know, Nelson and myself and even David, we pursued this out of the sheer joy and fun and dream of just flying. So we initially looked, we just wanted our own jetpack, and we look, I look at it as, as a great form of recreation, sort of like jet skiing or motocross. People load up their bikes and go out to the desert and go have fun. Maybe you have a jetpack and you load it up and you go to the lake and you go flying around. We are working, of course, on always ever improving the reliability of all the systems, uh, as well as redundancy and safety. So there could be some point in the future where we maybe have enough safety systems. If you wanted to fly over land, you could, but for the time being, we we try to limit all our flights to over water or of course on the tether. We'll see uh, how it goes. I'm an engineer, so I always think in terms of practical terms. There's, there is marketing where, of course, you know, we would love to have everybody have their own jetpack. And uh, <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah. yeah. Um, does it, does it float? I'm just thinking if you're doing a lot of over water stuff and you're, you know, you're low on fuel and things like that, and you wind up in the drink, how, how, What's the what's the plan when you're in the water with it? It it does float. There's at least three items on it that will help it float. One is the fuel tank itself. Uh, the fuel is lighter than water. If you go in, maybe you don't go in the first second. So there's a lot of air in the fuel tank. Uh, so that will provide some buoyancy. We also have a automatically CO2 inflating flotation system on the very back of the jetpack. You'll see it whenever we fly over water, Monaco. Statue of Liberty, London, or Long Beach, uh, we have this little black cartridge that bolts to the back of the fuel tank. And if that ever hits the water within you know, half a second or, or less, uh, there's a little pellet in there that melts and it automatically inflates into a big balloon. Now that saves the jetpack. Nelson was always interested in making sure that the jetpack gets saved. Uh, as for the pilot, um, <laughs> we got a little flotation waste unit that also is automatically inflating if it ever gets wet and that saves the pilot. The pilot also can eject from the jetpack just by touching the two buckles on either side with the same ones that Nelson used uh, on the rocket belt 50 years ago. You just touch them and all five belts just pop right off and, and you're out of the jetpack. Wow. So that's amazing. What's what's now, the flight ceiling? I'm just wondering on just general terms where how how was is there an altitude record on uh, your your particular rocket belt? Um I mean it, belt, I think it's been listed that you know it'll operate at 10,000 feet, maybe higher. It's all dependent, you know, air gets 
less dense as you go higher. So having enough thrust to still take off uh, definitely operates great at sea level and maybe a couple thousand feet. That's that's where we've, we've been flying it. Uh, we haven't done any altitude records yet. You'd either need to time it so that you have enough fuel to descend and land or, or you just go for it and then have a parachute. So you go until you run out of fuel and then throw out your parachute and do the landing. But it it's definitely extremely responsive. That's something that has been amazing to see. We, we never went untethered until the summer. It was in July of 2015. We went to my uncle's farm up north, Northern California. And uh, David went for his first three free flights. And you can see those also on our YouTube channel. That's Those are the first videos that that went live along with the Statue of Liberty. Up until then, we had been very quiet. I've been keeping this secret from everybody for <laughs> 20, 20, 25 years that, oh yeah, I work on jetpacks. I mean, I might've mentioned it here and there, but everybody says, ah, that's crazy. That'll never happen. So, and you know, <laughs> through the years- the hardest I, secret to keep. Yeah, up until <laughs> a certain point. I mean, uh, I've, always, I've always wanted to think young. So if you have a dream, you should pursue it. And uh, there'll be a lot of, maybe older folk other than Nelson that will say, oh, you can't do that. That's impossible. And I just didn't want to believe that it wasn't possible to do. You know, I had to have a sort of earn a living for a good 20 years. So unfortunately, the whole jetpack thing always took a back burner, was like a, a weekend thing. No pun intended. Yeah. And uh <laughs> But it all really started to come together a few years ago, and I found myself in a position where I could just jump head in and uh, feet first, and, and and just we've been working on it twenty four seven for a good couple of years. And you know, if you watch the videos, you'll you'll see the evolution of the machine here and there. And you you mentioned JB nine, JB ten. I mean, I'm working really hard to complete JB eleven in the next few weeks. So that's wow. that's a pretty significant uh, upgrade and change to the existing jetpack. It will have an additional 130 pounds of thrust. Right now we have about 400 pounds of thrust, so we're bumping up to about 530. Wow. Uh, we like to always say, "In thrust we trust," and uh, <laughs> and more more thrust just means more performance. I, it will be astonishing to see taking off with a full tank of fuel having a whole extra 100 pounds of thrust i mean it'll just rocket just probably like the rocketeer uh, right now sometimes when we take off you'll see us be cautious of course the very first 30 seconds or a minute or so but the vehicle does get lighter as you burn off the 60 to 70 pounds of fuel just like the rocket belt it's happening slower the rocket belt was always as soon as you took off, I believe Bill says uh, you have an emergency landing situation. You need to be thinking about where you're going to land. And the whole time, just to even hover, you have to be coming off the throttle because you're burning 60 pounds of 11 pound per gallon hydrogen peroxide in, in 20 seconds. You're burning it so quickly that you're becoming light. And if you just hold one position on the throttle, you rocket upwards. So those rocket belt pilots were really very experienced at flying those machines. And it, it wasn't maybe as smooth of an experience if you watch, you know, everything that's going on versus the jetpack is a much more relaxed. It is stable. Uh, once you have a little bit of training, I'm just very calm with it. Uh, you, you, you do things more slowly with the throttle. You, there's a little bit of delay because it's a jet. So there's some inertia 
trying to spool up the, the turbines and spool them down. So you might anticipate, you, you develop a flying skill where you anticipate, you don't think about it, but like if you go into a corner or you bank or you're going to go forward, you'll probably get on the throttle right just before you pitch forward and you won't lose any altitude. So it'll, it'll look very natural. I, I like it. I like, I, I really like how it, how it responds. And yeah, spoiler alert. We, uh, we hear that same exact phrase. I like it from uh, Billy Campbell in the next minute of this, yeah. uh, this movie, <laughs> you know, speaking of, uh, speaking of the minute and the movie itself, as this minute, uh, particular starts minute 45, uh, we see cliff, uh, coming up on the Ford trimotor, uh, and then doing a little formation flying with it. And of course you would never be flying completely horizontally. That's yeah, you're always in a well, vertical attitude, leaning a little bit. Yeah, at the moment we'll never fly horizontal. There are plans to, along with the increased thrust that we're going to have, try to range extend. Uh, so we'll we'll get a little more horizontal. I mean, we might get to sixty degrees. I think. Wow. And then you've got somebody like Eve Rossi out there who actually has the wings on his back, and he he has to launch by helicopter, but then he can fly with uh, with small turbines. Yeah. And we did a uh, we at EAA operate not only a Ford trimotor like what we're seeing on the screen here, we operate a B seventeen bomber, and we did a formation flight with him in the B seventeen, which was awesome, absolutely surreal. To, you know, B seventeen, and then here comes this guy <laughs> flying alongside really right out of this uh, this scene in the movie and it's it's making me think now we've got to do something like that with our uh, our trimotor very very quickly before we get away from uh, this part of uh, of this clip uh, the airplane you're looking at there 1929 Ford trimotor really the first mass produced all metal airliner uh, really created the modern airline industry uh, as we know it certainly in uh, in the US and in North America and what uh, some people might uh, get a kick out of is that this uh, individual airplane, this is November 414 Hotel, uh, is currently flying with Grand Canyon Airlines. And you can actually go book a trip on on this if you want to do a sightseeing, a sightseeing trip uh, out in the Grand Canyon. And uh, and Jim, by the time this is aired, uh, when we're recording it, not quite yet, but by the time this is aired, you will have uh, taken a Ford Trimotor flight. That's right. I had a great time. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. In the future, I will have had. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I, I don't. I'll, I'll report back if uh, if I saw any fellow with a rocket pack on his back. But uh, yeah, it's uh, one thing that caught me on the scene is where is the kill switch on uh, on on your machine? Uh, I didn't know if uh, <laughs> you probably have something where you have to hit it several times to knock to turn off the power. I would think. Yeah, I, I was uh, rewatching this clip the other night, and uh, there's a lot of little interesting subtleties that, you know, without trying to recreate it, I guess possibly we might have recreated it. Uh, you see Bill Campbell or, you know, Cliff Secord, the character flying the Rocketeer or the Rocket Belt uh, by the Ford Trimotor, and he salutes the stewardess. Stewardess's name was Taylor Gilbert. David. Uh, when he was doing the Statue of Liberty, uh, it hasn't been shown yet. There is a documentary that has been filmed for years that will hopefully come out in a few months on the whole jetpack experience. It's called Own the Sky. David saluted this Statue of Liberty during his free flight there in November 2015. We, we've always had a kill switch on the jetpack to be safe. It's something that Nelson insisted on I'm putting in there the initial kill switch. We had concerns that it might actually kill the jetpack while you're flying. It wasn't reliable enough, I I felt, and also David. After 
those initial flights and definitely before the Monaco flights, we actually removed that kill switch. There is a main master switch and there's a FADEX system that takes care of powering up the engines and controlling them, idling and the whole throttle system. The concern is what happens if there's some sort of emergency, say you fall over on the ground or something and you can't turn the engines off. You you wouldn't want to get, you know, blasted from them. You'd want to be able to immediately kill the jetpack. So I spent significant number of days trying to improve the existing system before we just disabled it. Then as of maybe I think it was April, I I built a third jetpack in April and I got to finally implement a much more, as I say, Steph spec uh kill switch. It's waterproof uh hermetic, magnetic, the lanyard is not going to fall off. It's it's sort of like a, a personal watercraft kill switch. You have a lanyard you put around your right wrist. Oh, right. Yeah. Before you start everything, you make sure that's engaged or it won't start. And the, the difficulty is how long does that lanyard have to be? If you leave it long like it is on a personal watercraft, well, you have to completely fall off the vehicle before uh, the engine is killed. Here, right. you're strapped in. You may be strapped in and you need those engines off. So... I have the lanyard in such a length that if you extend your arm fully, you'll probably pull the kill switch off. So it's your right hand. The right hand should stay on the throttle at all times. As we get more experienced, you see pilots maybe taking their hands off to salute, etc. I think saluting might be okay, but eh, I might not want to do it with my right hand. So it, it could be possible. I, I have witnessed witnessed the engines getting killed after a landing on a tether flight because the pilot does hadn't you know it was the first time we were flying this new belt and uh, he extended his arm fully and up off goes the engine so it definitely tested the kill switch it you know it does work so (laughs) you want to respect that we'll see how things proceed whether it's something that we really should have or or if it should be disabled i think i think there's still a reason to have one on the off chance something were to happen and you really needed to turn those engines off, it would be nice to just rip your arm away and off go the engines. So uh, or it's uh, reality imitating art then. I guess just don't don't wave yeah, too enthusiastically. Right. Yeah, yeah. You can do everything right you want with your left hand. You know, it's, use your left hand. So. Use the left. You know, apropos of, uh, of absolutely nothing, it's, uh, you know, obvious, uh, obviously Jim and I and, and, and you as well, Stefano, we dearly love this movie. We have nothing but affection for it. Jim and I committing to, uh, to uh, spending a lot of time diving into it and, 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 and enjoying it so much. I have, to, uh, I have to apologize and say that this minute, for some reason, contains my least favorite scene in the entire film. And that is uh, we're going through the cornfield and then we cut to the two old guys, one of whom is uh, uh, Tiny Ron Lothar out of, out of makeup. And I'm not sure who the other guy is. Maybe Jim knows. And their little big gopher thing. I don't know why. It's just too weak of a joke for me. And I just, I've got to go, I've got to get that off my chest. I've got to get it out there so we can move on with our lives. Uh, well, it, if, if it helps, we, uh, a little bit earlier in the series, we talked with uh, Lisa Peterson, who was talking about the uh, orange groves that they're blowing through here. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, this whole scene can never be repeated because that entire orange grove is now some kind of a housing development. Oh, sure. It's just the march of time has taken away a lot of agriculture and this part, not not too far from Santa Maria Airport, where the uh, where the original GB scenes were filmed, 
but yeah, all those all those oranges are oh, the trees are gone, and it's now you know uh, split level homes. That's the ultimate uh, Southern California cliche, right there. You know, this whole thing used to be orange groves, as far as the yeah. eye could see, and now housing development. No, exactly. Right. I mean, I I but live anyway. uh, in Ventura County, and all these areas were orange groves. I was told, and and now they're just homes. But th- <laughs> there's a lot of similarities uh-huh. in this orange grove scene and and our existing operations too. Not intentional. As as for your comment about this scene. It wasn't until you contacted me for this interview that I finally understood what that farmer was saying. For me, my entire life that I've watched this movie, I didn't hear Big Gopher. I just thought he was like, hey, gopher, like, <laughs> let, check out that gopher going. So I always thought, to me, it was rather funny versus this big gopher. And maybe that's what he should have said <laughs> instead of the big gopher. Because I mean, here is here is this man just rocketing away at at you know 10 feet but when we go to our training facility that we set up we actually do drive through a citrus grove uh citrus orchard of lemons uh so it's very similar to the trees look just like this and we're traveling down between them for a good mile or two before we get to our little gated area where we have our tether system set up yeah so you just and you've never you've never wound up flying with a bed sheet over your Uh, head so that's no hopefully (laughs) No, <laughs> right. yeah. or thrown flown through a clothesline uh, or anything else like that. So, um, <clears throat> well, Stefano, I guess uh, you know you've kind of answered this when we talk about operations over water versus over uh, over land. But uh, you know, I've got to ask or at least express that I hope you guys know that uh, we would dearly love to see you guys out here at Oshkosh uh, for Air Venture. Uh, one year, whenever uh, whenever that makes sense, whenever you guys think you're ready for it. And, you know, we have a seaplane base. We have a whole area down there with nothing but water. Yeah, no, uh, I've been an EAA member probably since I was 15 years old. Uh, yeah, that's wonderful. In the 80s and uh, tried to make it out last year. We tried to contact. there. We just couldn't make it happen. And uh, this year we we have a lot of things scheduled. So so maybe maybe 2018 will be the magic year to come on out there and of course we'll have evolved far and beyond what we had last year and what we had this year so and maybe i need to come out and see you guys and uh talk about a story for the magazine you're you're always welcome to, to, to stop by our that. shop yeah i, I was wondering about uh, uh, sorry okay. jim business <laughs> i was wondering about instrumentation when you're when you're up i'm assuming that you have an altimeter you've got fuel quantity uh, maybe a compass is, is there any kind of other information that you're getting while well, as a pilot besides just the, the the feel of what's what's happening i I've spent a significant effort on the instrumentation system that we have so far. Initially, the only instrumentation system we had was a single, fairly dim, slow-blinking red LED. And you'll see that on our on our Statue of Liberty flight. Uh, that would go on with about maybe two minutes of flight time left, maybe a little less at the time. David had a timer also that he would use to make sure that he would start coming in before that light comes on. He got he got pretty mesmerized by that flight. I think he he was caught out there, and the light went on, and he's like, "Oh, when did this thing start flashing?" And you'll see him race to the ship really quickly. And you know, he landed. We had about a quart left of fuel on that flight. Uh, that was that was pretty close. But wow. uh, since then, we've we've mainly been interested in knowing our fuel quantity. So at the at the moment, and this is continually evolving every few months first came up with what's called a pilot warning display system. If you check out our Instagram, you'll see a video at like 8 p.m. at night where we test it out for the first time in March of 2016. 
and it just had a series of nine super bright LEDs. The top LED is the most important one. That's our low fuel indicator. It'll blink vigorously quickly red uh, when you're low on fuel, or it's just green, solid green when you have enough fuel. So when you get down to the last two gallons, uh, it switches from green to a, a very rapidly flashing red. The other lights are, are mainly related to the engines at the time. It's evolved into a dual OLED display where we have engine instrumentation data on the, it's on the right pod, but the left screen is for the left engine, the right one's for the right engine. Uh, we can monitor RPM and thousands of RPM, exhaust gas temperature, our fuel pump voltages, all sorts of other engine parameters in the start sequence and for calibration reasons. So that's our focus right now. Uh, we're always flying relatively close to the ground, so altimeters probably not that important yet, but I'm hoping, I have screen real estate on the left pod to add airspeed <laughs> and altitude and all those other pilot nav, maybe we'll put a little GPS. But I think a lot of this, people always say, oh, it needs to be in the HUD, a heads-up display unit. For, for right now, I've been keeping it there on the pods just because they can get filmed by the GoPros. We always have a record of what was going on. Uh, and everybody can refer to them versus only the pilot says, oh, I see this red light. And you're like, well, which red light is that? So, But when we fly, we like to see all green. So you'll see in a lot of the videos, yeah. <laughs> like the London flight, et cetera, you'll see this nice Christmas tree of green lights. If anything is yellow, that's like a warning. Maybe take a look at me. If it's red, you should probably land. Of course, we'll still, we're still tuning sometimes the exhaust gas temperatures, so I wouldn't freak out completely if you see a red exhaust gas temperature. Sometimes it blips into the red, but we'll probably set a slightly higher limit for that. Hey, can you fly one engine out? How, how does that operate? Uh, with the existing JB9 and JB10, you can't. It, uh, it requires both those engines are operating. JB11 is a change in philosophy. It's interesting because when we first started this project with the jets, our JB6 had 12 jet engines. So in terms of wow. redundancy there, there was a lot of it. Of course, trying to get 12 jet engines to run about 10 years ago with the electronic controls that were available back then, it was rather challenging. That's why JB7 came along and that had eight engines. So we reduced the number there. And then there was a sort of significant change to going to something that was as small as possible, which is sort of the JB9 series. And it, and it took, a, took a diversion there. But again, working towards reliability and safety and redundancy, you're going to see a few more engines uh, coming on board so that we can tolerate an engine out situation and still be flying. Wow. Everybody wants that Iron Man experience. I mean, I understand what you're saying with the uh, with the instrumentation, yeah. but I think <laughs> there's obviously a common push toward a heads up where you've got blinking lights and all kinds of numbers that don't really mean that much when you're flying. But uh, <laughs> And some sort of aerial Siri chattering, and, yeah. uh, chattering yeah. at you the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I've got to uh, say quickly, Stefano, the, uh, uh, the Long Beach flight you guys did, um, I've been watching you guys, uh, you know, uh, for the last few years, watching closely and and drooling with envy. But that Long Beach flight really, uh, really hit home for me. Uh, my wife and I were married aboard the Queen Mary, so I'm sitting there thinking, here's this ocean liner, special place for me, and you know, my favorite ship of all time. There's a jetpack flying around. Uh, I assumed you guys Beautiful. did that just for me, and that anybody else who saw it was kind of irrelevant. So, we, well, we, so my thanks to the whole company. 
We might have done it just for you. If you look at our view count, I think even after four or five months, we only had maybe 10,000 views, maybe. Um, really? For some reason, nobody right. ever really learned that we flew in front of the Queen Mary. Uh, it was mm-hmm. supposed to be our inaugural L.A. flight. Took a lot of effort to get permission to do that flight. Sure. Uh, there's a whole nother story associated with that flight. David might have received the first uh, ticket for jetpacking wow. <laughs> uh, ever by the Harbor Patrol, but uh, now they can't find the ticket. So thankfully, uh, hopefully that that episode is over. Wow. Uh, but we did have full Unauthor- auth- certificate of authorization for that flight um, wow. that the other agencies, you know, had had provided to us. Uh, so that was uh, sanctioned flight and uh well jim maybe we can uh, link or even embed this one on the uh on the landing page for this particular episode at Rock oh for sure yeah it's, it's definitely if you go to if you go to this particular episode we'll have a, a bunch of links i'm sure to the youtube page uh to uh, jetpack's main main site and uh everything everything else that we can we can find on it uh yeah. this, it so uh t- two other movies that were that are important I mean Iron Man definitely just that ability to fly just in a in a suit of armor uh that's been a favorite as well as another movie that seems to I mean if we go on IMDb you'll always see how movies are rated and I never understand I think Rocketeer should be 10 stars out of 10 of course it's uh I believe 6.5 stars out of 10 on their on their rating scale from the critics uh but Disney came out in 2015 with a movie called Tomorrowland. Yeah. It, it oh, happens yeah. to have 6.4 <laughs> stars out of 10. Now, it is a darker movie, but I went to see it, of course, for the jetpacks. And Same here. <laughs> and, you know, that opening scene with a young Frank Walker going to the 1964 World's Fair. And he's like, he's getting judged in that contest. Like, why did you build a jetpack? And he's like, can it just be fun? Like for the practical purpose. (laughs) And uh, so Nelson and David and I went to see that movie in June of 2015, right after it came out, right before we did our free flights. And at the end of the movie, we're just sitting there in the theater looking at each other and going, well, it's quite possible we're the only people in the world with a jetpack and we're going to go fly it. You know, next month, uh, free. You know, as the theater is emptying out, and uh, it, it was a it was a special moment uh, seeing that. It, it's a shame. I but, mean, D- Disney seems to be able to make these great movies that they don't know where their audience is for them. I mean, I, I feel this way about Tomorrowland. I feel that way about Rocketeer. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw John Carter of Mars. There's, it it just seems to be these great films that I'm their audience. They just don't know, you know. <laughs> Who I am, or, or you know, right. who, who all all of us are that you know enjoy these kind of films that you can put yourself in the picture, saying, "I wish I were the Rocketeer. I wish I, you know, I wish I could do the things that are here." And in in your case, you've done that exactly. Yeah, um, the, these are special films, uh, definitely cult classics. Nelson has built himself a Cirrus X three <laughs> over over a decade ago. It's it's extremely authentic. Uh, I mean, oh, if you look man. at it, you couldn't. You probably couldn't tell it from the original. In the movie, he has the exact same leather jacket that Bill Campbell wears. He has the pants, the boots, even the pistol. And, and of course, the helmet, uh, the classic Rocketeer helmet. And and we have multiple of the Rocketeer posters from the movie all laminated around the shop, as well as a lot of the the other comic book strips uh, from Dave Stevens uh, with his Betty Page uh girlfriend in there so well 
we're going to have to talk with uh, we're gonna, well. Uh, Billy's listening to the show, so we're going to have to get Billy Campbell maybe yes. to come out and give his blessing on on your organization. Just uh, I'm sure <laughs> yeah, it'd be, awesome. it'd be a pleasure to meet Bill after all these years. I really enjoyed his performance in this uh, movie. I also really enjoyed Jennifer Connelly's uh, performance. Oh, for sure. Um, of course. So, any uh, any any breathing male probably did. Yeah. Um, Stefano, any chance you could maybe snap a picture of some of the stuff inside your office or or of Nelson's uh, outfit or anything we could share? Yeah, uh, I was actually digging through some photos from ten years ago because I thought this was going to be a more visual thing. That so I'd have to dig up some stuff. Uh-huh. So well, we'll we'll get those to you. Yes, fantastic. Oh, that'd be yeah. great. Yeah. I'd love I, to share. I have another question. I, I mean, I know you're working on uh, all this propulsion equipment for uh, for a flying man. But has have you looked at other applications like maybe a small jet or being able to you know superpower an ultralight you know make it a different class of of winged uh, aircraft? Uh, we we've been looking at other or trying to develop other various flying platforms, and there's also our eVTOL effort that uh, David's been uh, pushing. Uh, we call Blade Runner, uh, but it's a commuter type <laughs> vehicle. Awesome. I mean, there's a lot of there's several organizations out there right now working on electric uh, powered flight for the sort of zero to 200 mile regime uh, just you know to get to work and back really quickly Larry Page for instance is one with his Kitty Hawk efforts so yeah and yeah, and the Kitty Hawk was just making some uh, making the rounds uh, a couple of weeks ago sort of a multi-copter you sit on flying over the water with a almost looked like an old hippity hop toy in the middle of it that looked like we- a kick there's we no talked. We pack, talked with but... uh, Eric Lindbergh a few weeks ago about uh, his efforts with um, Embry Riddle is getting big into electric flight and looking at those things where you can have a flying car that it does it doesn't require a wing thing, but it's it's more like you have a, a more of a Jetsons car where just you you hover around to uh, to take it like a, a an air taxi to different places and. Yeah, well, uh, I my background actually is heavy in electrics. I, I've been involved in the Southern California Plug in America movement for the earliest stages. Uh, I worked for a company that uh, created the EV1 for General Motors. Uh, also worked oh, for about really? a decade on solar-powered aircraft. You might have heard about Pathfinder and Centurion and Helios. Uh, Helios was, you know, 200. 47 foot wingspan aircraft that weighed only about 1500 pounds, but we, we achieved the world's high altitude record for propeller driven flight about a hundred thousand feet back in 2003. So, and, and I was involved with the X prize, the progressive insurance automotive X prize, which was a 2010 competition for vehicles that do better than a hundred miles per gallon equivalent. Uh, of course, electric vehicles won out in that uh, competition there. So I'm, I have a, a keen interest in electric propulsion. It's incredibly instantaneous, powerful, and and very efficient. Uh, and I actually am working on an electric jetpack. Wow. Uh, we we have a lot to do with the fuel still, but uh, trying to trying to bring that up to speed as well. So we'll have some alternatives. Batteries only continue to get better. So. Once you nail the platform, uh, run times will only increase as the years pass. Yeah, it, it's almost like Moore's Law, only for power. It's just the 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 incredible power of uh, it, it, uh, batteries becoming more dense, uh, the charge time is becoming faster and faster. It's it it, it really yeah. is the future, and but the future seems to be very 
very soon. It's not the distant future. It all seems to be coming up very quickly in this next decade. So exciting yeah. times, definitely. But back to, back to the jetpack, it's, uh, you know, strapping that thing on your back the first time is, uh, it's a tremendous amount of power that you have at your fingertips. And uh, you, you acclimate to it after the first few flights. It might be a little scary that first time coming up up on the power. Once you acclimate to it, it's a type of flying. I have my private pilot's license I got when I was 17. I've done all the RC planes and RC helicopters back when it was really hard to do. And it was all gas powered in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but this this jetpack, I, I just can't can't get enough of it. So it's, it's, it's been a lifelong dream. And uh, I'm happy that we finally were able to achieve it. I, I wish we could have achieved it 10 or 20 years ago when I was a little younger, but but it is happening. Uh, so, is, is, do you come down horse? Because I would think if I were if I were flying that thing, I would be yelling the whole time. It's just it must be something that you just must be hooting as it's as it's flying. I can't imagine just being calm in, inside uh, while you're wearing it. I'm I'm probably just smiling. <laughs> the whole time i'm 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 pretty calm it's good to be yeah. calm you know you're, you're trying to manage a lot of power but uh it lets you to be more lucid up there while you're flying around but it's 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 not as probably violent as the rocket belt is you you come up on the power slowly and it's it's hard to describe just what it feels like but it's almost like these two big pillowy marshmallows are lifting you up mm. and then you're just sort of hanging there and you're just like wow uh, I can go anywhere I want. I can go forward, backwards. Up. I can scale this building. It, it was a true joy to finally, you know, get off the tether and just be free and just let it, just let it travel. You know, I, I got maybe got up to fifty miles an hour or so wow. and zoomed around for a few minutes and yeah, it's very beautiful. I can only imagine. It's stunning. Wow. Well, this this has been a, a great a, a great revelation that this how much is how how close we are to having a flying we are, we do have a flying man but i mean the the idea of where this is going to go in the near future is is astonishing and the fact that you guys have taken it you you've improved the endurance by a factor of 20 that's just just amazing we were stuck in that 30 second range for so long and then here you guys are i i know it's been 40 years for uh for jetpack aviation but from our point of view it just seems like finally bam there it is so you guys have a lot to be proud of Thank you. I, Thank I guess you. the next step is to land on the back of a dirigible, but well, we, we can hold that for a later date. But, uh, well, well, thank, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I, I'm, I'm glad we can share a movie that you love and that we love. Uh, and, and knowing that this, seeing this movie was kind of a, a, a kickoff to, you know, to, to your career right now. We have a great time listening to all these people that have tell, have told us in the past how they're involvement in aviation came out of this movie and uh here's here's another story of that for those for people listening in on the show that want to uh, talk some more about how <laughs> the rocketeer affected their lives we are available at a bunch of different uh social media uh, places where you can talk to us of course we are available always on twitter rocketeer minute we are available on facebook at facebook.com slash rocketeer minute you can also get us at the big site as we were talking about before rocketeer minute.com where you can see there's a whole bunch of links in this particular episode so go to the uh, see a bunch of associated links with with this new technology but you can pick up on old episodes there as well so visit uh, rocketeer minute.com if you are not already subscribed please go to itunes or google play sign up uh just search for rocketeer minute and subscribe and you can get us hot and fresh every morning you know, a brand new episode monday through friday 
so uh, don't don't miss the next exciting episode because this is this is how we, we want to have every episode. Again, thanks so much, Stefano, to, for being on the show, and uh, we'll pick it all up next week here on the Rocketeer Minute. So until next time, over and out. Get it, kid.